0: Okay, our men are back. Uh, We're going to look at Zechariah. uh, Zechariah chapter 11 in particular. And over, um, and by the way, and Kelly, if you're listening in, I don't know, um, I know you emailed me or texted me, emailed me on the church's website, but she was looking for um, a follow-up message to what we had preached earlier, and it's on the, on the Internet, I believe. Jeff, are they all up now? Not quite. Not quite. Oh, well, then there's a follow-up, Kelly, if you're listening in, and uh, it'll be there. Are you waiting on a title from me? That's my fault. See, i I got to remember to send a title for the message to him before he can upload it to the Internet. So uh, that'll be up soon, and um, I'll, I'll, we'll get that done. I've got it saved somewhere, but I'll I'll get it to you. Ezekiel chapter eleven is is somewhat, uh, not exactly, but somewhat of a continuation of where we've been uh, regarding uh, the shepherds and God's dealing with the shepherds of Israel um, back in uh, Jeremiah's time and Zechariah's time and oh, for over a period of really a, a few hundred years. And just by, by way of um, recounting what we've talked about, we talked about how um, God had denounced the leaders of the nation because of their failures, and how that they had failed to perform the functions and the duties of a true shepherd. They weren't taking care of the sheep. Now, we understood that those uh, words, uh, shepherds and sheep, were metaphors for the leaders of the nation and the people of the land. And they weren't doing what God had put them in their positions and places to do. And we found that in uh, um, Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 4, God had laid out very specific things that he expected of a good shepherd to do for the people. And, of course, if you think about a real shepherd, shepherding sheep, they were the exact same things that that a shepherd would do. He would seek out the lost. He would care for the sick. Those that had been driven away, he would go out and search them out and bring them back. Um, he said there they would. he would uh, bind up the broken. And, of course, I think what would you apply as far as sheep go, or in other words, a real sheep, uh, you know, if they were damaged or hurt, he could bind them up, but how would you apply that to us? And the only thing I could come up with is I think that he was would imply those that were emotionally strained and in despair, for the simple reason they weren't being fed and cared for. And um, and then it says he healed those who were sick and then the weak. You didn't strengthen the weak. Five things he mentions there. And so following shortly upon that then, the Lord says, Well, because you haven't done this, I'm going to remove you from your positions. And then I'm going to become your shepherd. I myself will perform the functions of a shepherd. I will seek out the lost. I will heal. I will bind you up. And all these other things that God wanted the leaders to do. Then, looking uh, over in verse 16, at the end of the verse, he says, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. In verse 17, I shall judge between sheep and sheep and rams and goats. In other words, if you judge between sheep and sheep, I mean, you look at one sheep, and then you look at another one over there, and you say, well, they're both sheep. (laughs) They both have wool on them. Uh, They both go, bah, you know, and and they eat grass and all these things. But when you fill the metaphor out, of what he was implying to us here, there were some who were not really acting as true sheep. And he was going to judge between them. And then when he said, uh, the rams and the goats, of course, leading, uh, meaning, again, the leaders, that he would judge between them. It, and we saw, you know, just in case you're wondering, Turn back in your Bible there to Jeremiah chapter 25. Now we looked at this, this passage earlier, but I, I want for, for sake of clarity <clears throat> just to be sure that we understand that it's very clear in this passage through Jeremiah who the shepherds are. He identifies them. He says, "Wail, well, shepherds, and cry roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. Now, how could he get it any more pungent language than that to identify who the shepherds are, the leaders of the flock? And in case we didn't get it the first time, verse 35, he says, and the shepherds will have no way to flee nor the leaders of the flock to escape. Verse 36, he says it again. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard. You might remember, and I'm not going to turn there, but you might remember how fearful Israel's leaders were in the day of the Lord Jesus, how they might lose their position. They were, they, they you know, and these were the same way. They wanted to protect what they had here on earth, and they wanted to maintain what they were doing. But as we'll see in this passage here, even not only just as we saw in Ezekiel, but here in Zechariah and Jeremiah, you know, they were all preaching the same thing, and as we would have expected them to do, we wouldn't expect the prophets to all have different messages. They all preached basically the same thing, especially when it came to the things we're speaking of here this morning. Now, beginning in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Zechariah, we have some really cool verses here concerning the, the announcement of the coming of the Lord's Messiah, his, the King of Israel. And in verse 9 of chapter 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, we recognize that immediately as being uh, uh, a verse from the Old Testament that was quoted and used in the New Testament. But in verse 10, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. Look down, if you would, at verse, um, verse 16. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lift, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its is goodness and how great its beauty? Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. Now, I wanted, I really wanted to be, I really wanted to stop and talk about that one. The guys stuck with the grain, but the women they got the new wine. <laughs> but I'm gonna let it go. I won't say any more about that. Chapter 10, verse 1, Ask the Lord for rain in the latter uh, in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. In other words, you see all these positive, positive, positive things that the Lord announces will come with the Messiah and their king. In verse 3, though, notice what he says there. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the goat herds. That is to say, the leaders. The Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. Wow. Imagine a royal steed, all decked out with the blankets and the trim all around and the gold chains and all these other things that they... They deck out a royal horse with it's going to enter into battle. And he said, I'm going to make Judah just like that. Then over in verse six, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord, their God, and I will hear them. Verse seven, those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. And their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them, and I will redeem them. And they shall increase as they once increased. Now, it's, again, you gotta, you got to pardon me, but I'm just sitting there thinking, well, okay, it's one thing for the Lord to whistle for his people. But don't whistle for your wife. That can end up real bad. I, I know about that. <laughs> you don't want to do it. It's just not a good thing to do. Yeah. Verse 9, I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I, Verse 10, I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. You know, if, if you keep up with the news that's going on in the Middle East, you know, not it, it's not just that the Christian population is shrinking in these countries, but the Jewish population continues to shrink as well. They're being driven out. Where do you think they go? They go back to the land of Israel. These things are in motion even as we speak today. They haven't been fulfilled in their totality, but, but these things are in operation even as we talk. You know, I think sometimes we forget. We think, well, you know, all these events that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born in a manger, and then when he grew up, you know, we read the gospel accounts, and then we come to the crucifixion, and how he died and and then rose again and he ascended up into the heavens and you know then we have all the other accounts in the epistles and and the book of acts about how the gospel was spread and boom then you know things come to an end and we don't there's nothing else in the bible about that but the point of the fact is is that those things and those promises that were set in motion that were well, actually were prophesied in the Old Testament were set in motion 2000 years ago and they have not stopped over the last 2000 years they are still in progress they are in progress today and they're coming close to the fulfillment of the ultimate ultimate end when the Lord comes to establish his final rule. He's going to do what he just said back here in, in chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And he is coming. And it won't be long. Verse 12 of chapter 10 says, So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. All of these wonderful, wonderful things that Zechariah talks about that is going to happen to his people, his flock. Why is it going to happen? Because he got rid of the false shepherds, and he became the shepherd himself. But then we saw in Ezekiel 34 and verse 21, we saw that he says, and my servant David. You see, it wasn't until several verses later that we found out that he would actually become shepherd himself through his servant David, the Messiah. And the Messiah, when he comes, Will operate and function just as if God Himself were the shepherd of the sheep, and he will take care of them just as a shepherd should. And then, didn't plan on this one, but you know, he, He will do, He will do exactly what Jesus announced to Israel that he would do in Isaiah 61 when he said. In verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Now, we need to focus in on the word poor because we're going to see that later on in in chapter 11 of Zechariah. But notice what he says here. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Remember those broken in verse 4 of chapter 34 in Ezekiel that he talked about? that the shepherds were to take care of the broken? Here he calls them brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, when the Lord comes and he functions as the Lord's, uh, Yahweh's slave, his servant, on his throne, he is going to function as a shepherd under the mighty shepherd God and do all the things that God expected of a shepherd to do and what he expects of God's shepherds to do today. That's why I tremble and shake when I think about what I have to do here. It is no easy thing, and anybody anybody who handles God's Word ought to feel the same way. Whether you're given whether whether you're given the task of just sharing a devotion, whether whether you teach every Sunday like Jerry does, and whether these men over here did Jeff and Mark and Don and them, it's a heavy responsibility. And it it creates fear in your heart to think of the many today in our land, and really not just our land, but around the world, who have just really, I guess to me, like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He just saw verses in there he didn't like. He just cut them out. Did you know that? Yeah. You ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Oh Thomas Jefferson, yeah, he was—he was a you know called a deist, but he had a lot of verses in the Bible. He didn't like them; he just cut them out. So they—you can actually buy one. They've reprinted them with all the verses he cut out, uh, you know, in the scriptures. Didn't that just? Can you imagine having to stand before the Lord in judgment when He judged between sheep and sheep and rams and goats, and He does all these things. What kind of a day is it going to be for them? It's scary. It ought to be scary for us. But you know what? I can, the verses that Jerry read this morning from Daily Light, though, he says that we might go on to become perfect. It doesn't have to be that way. Through our obedience to the Lord as he expected these shepherds to be, and the people would not have been scattered and broken and sick and weak and need healing had they fed them properly. They would be strong in spirit and able to withstand the pressures of the day. But we can be that way if we're people people of the book. As a matter I might as well just take these notes and just go. I go. I'm so far off my notes now. It's not because <laughs> I'm. I'm wanting to. I'm wanting to go over here and you know look. Look, look at um, you know over it. Well, I can't do that because uh, okay. Let's go to chapter eleven. I get too far ahead and and, I, and I'll be. I'll really be out here. So when he comes to chapter eleven, though, then he turns into this negative judgment aspect again. And he begins to talk about the shepherds again. Now, he uses some metaphorical language and probably some literal language here in this passage, um, talking about the the, the uh, cedars of Lebanon and the cypress. I think are, these are metaphorical here. Now, I just, and I read a commentary about from this guy that I, I would have been highly respectful of him until I, until I read this. Uh, he thought this whole thing was literal, and it was just... Uh, you know, burning down of these trees. And, but I think these stand for the leaders of the nation. See, the cedars of Lebanon were those mighty cedars that, that David had Hiram cut down and put on a raft and bring down through the Mediterranean down to Israel and then finally over to Jerusalem so Solomon could build a temple. They were highly sought after, tall trees, He says, fire is going to devour your cedars. And wail, he says, "O cypress, for the cedar has fallen. Now, the cypress was like a fir tree. So the cypress is wailing here because, wow, if they took down those mighty leaders, what's going to happen to me? I'm going down too. And then finally, he says, wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. Now, the oaks of Bashan were... You know, if, you're, if you can picture in your mind, you know, your map of Israel, you got Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Right up here to the right of the Sea of Galilee, you had Bashan. And then down along the Jordan River, along the banks, is where these oaks grew. And it was so, so heavy down there and thick with brush and trees. Um, you, you, it's like a lot of rivers today. You know, you can look like up in Indiana when we were just there. You could look across a field way across there and then you would see a line of trees or you might be just driving down the interstate and you'd see a line of trees but then pretty soon you came to a bridge and you realized, oh, there's a river through there but you couldn't see it. Well, it was the same way then and lions used to like to hang out in that area. It, it was not a necessarily a safe place to go, but he's telling them, O Oaks of Bashan, the thick forest has come down. Why? Verse 3, there is the sound of wailing shepherds. I just, when you think about the shepherds, the leaders, those wailing because of the judgment that has come, he says, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions. Now that's again a beautiful metaphorical picture of the lions that hung out in those thickets and the fact that their cover's been blown. It's burned down. They have no place to go. Same way with the shepherds. They've been exposed. Not a pretty sight. Not a pretty sight when false shepherds because of their false teaching, have been exposed. He says, for the pride of the Jordan, which was the all these trees along the banks, is in ruins. Then he turns in verse 4 and he says, and thus says the Lord my God. In other words, Zechariah is telling us that God had told him now to say these things and act on his behalf. So keep that in mind as we read these next few verses here. He says, feed the flock for slaughter, whose buyers, whose owners or buyers slaughter them and feel no guilt. You see what um, he's telling Zechariah? These who have been sold out, he said, Zechariah, I want you to go feed them. Feed the ones that are, have been bought for slaughter." And then he tells them, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. Now we've noted language like this before uh, in other messages, where the Jewish people in particular were carrying on and acting as if they were, you know, A-OK. They were lying, cheating, stealing, Sleeping with their neighbor's wife, doing all kinds of wickedness, and yet they would say things like, Bless the Lord, as the Lord lives, just like a lot of us would do today. And it didn't emanate from their heart, it was just words off their lips, and they didn't mean it. And so here they were, selling their own fellow countrymen as slaves. And making money off of it, and say, "Boy, bless the Lord, he, He's made me rich." And then they would go out and scheme to find others that they could sell and make more money, and they felt no guilt. I, I don't. I, I lack words to, just to think to, to think what it must have been like, but, except for the fact that I know it goes on today. It's just as real today as it was then. And he says then finally, and their shepherds do not pity them. In other words, the leaders of the nation, looking upon all these transactions that were taking place and had no regard, no pity for those that were being abused. But notice in verse 6 then he says, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land says the Lord but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king and they shall attack the land or strike the land and I will not deliver them from their hand so I fed the flock for slaughter that is he in obedience did what God told Zechariah to do I fed the flock that was had been sold for slaughter isn't that amazing language that God uses That just to describe somebody that had been sold to someone else to be used as a servant, whether it was in the fields or in their home as a domestic slave or whatever. And God says, You sold them for slaughter. And then he tells them, he says, um, and, and now this, and I'm reading from the New King James, but he says, In particular, the poor of the flock. Now, why does he single out the poor of the sheep? If we had time, and maybe another day I will take the time to look up several passages in the Old Testament where we would see that when he speaks of the poor of the flock, the downtrodden, he's talking about those who had an ear for the Lord's word. He is talking about those who had a particular sensitivity and a spiritual acuteness to what the prophets were saying and preaching. That's why he told them, I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular, the poor of the flock. And he says, I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. Of course, the word for beauty there, if you have a marginal note, it'll tell you it means the word for grace or favor or graciousness, something along that line. And the word for bonds means something like to be binding or to be in unity. So the picture here you have is that the shepherd has gathered his flock together and they're all one in unity. There's not shepherds that have, or sheep that have been driven astray. They're not wandered off somewhere, fallen over a cliff or, or, you know, stuck somewhere where the shepherd has to go rescue them, which, of course, they weren't doing. And he says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now I'm going to be the first one to tell you there isn't hardly anybody that you can read about that can agree on who these people are these three shepherds, and I don't know either. But my hunch would be they're representative, uh, as some others think, of the spiritual leaders of the nation in their classes. In other words, like the scribes, the priests, and the civil rulers. The important thing I think we need to see there is he says, I dismissed them. I turned them loose. I let them go because of the failures of their responsibilities. Matter of fact, in verse 9, he says, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die. In other words, he's feeding the poor of the flock, but he's not going to feed them. He says, let the dying die. Does that sound like anything Jesus said? Let the dead bury the dead. Let them go. Oh that reminds me of what Don said. He said he said he left the disease behind. (laughs) Let the dead bury the dead, let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And that's strong language that the Lord is using. Just let them eat their own flesh. Now that's, that's, that's well, it's like one guy said, that's hard, that's hard preaching, man. <laughs> so be it. It's the Lord's words. And if we want to be participants in the Lord's rule, when, Jesus, or when, when Zechariah here says, your king is coming and you want to be ready and prepared, then really the picture we have here is stay away from these guys. Keep separated from them and just let them eat each other's flesh. Now, I'm going to skip down to verse 11 for the sake of time, because I'm just about out. But notice again, he said, So it was broken on that day, thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. You see how the metaphor fulfills itself there and explains itself? The poor of the flock, the simple ones, the downtrodden of the land, the weak ones, not, not the ones who were in wealthy positions and had the best jobs and made the most money and had the highest status in the land and were politically connected and all those sorts of things, and religiously connected too, I might add. Not those, that's not who he's talking about, but the simple, the downtrodden, but those who had an ear for the Lord's word. That that speaks volumes to me. And so he said to them, now listen, now he's done. He did what the Lord asked him to do, and now watch what happens here. Then I said to them in verse 12, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. And so they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now, I think we're connected enough to know, but I'm, I want us to turn back there and look at it. Uh, Exodus, oh, I forgot where now. Hmm, let me find it. Exodus 21. Turn to Exodus chapter 21 and verse 12. Um... um Well, that's not it. It's 32. Exodus 21, verse 32. Well, that says it right there. I just didn't read it right. Exodus 21, verse 32. Notice what he says there. He says, if a man opens, uh, excuse me, verse 32, if the, the ox gores a male or female slave, he shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now that's, far as I know, the only reference to thirty pieces of silver in Scripture other than what we have here, and of course, the quotation of this, this passage in, in the New Testament with respect to the Lord Jesus. So what is he referencing here? Why does this come about with Zechariah? After he had preached and spoken to the people exactly what Yahweh had told him to do, what was so unsettling about this whole thing? Well, number one, they couldn't think of anything more valuable to pay for his wages for the service that he had rendered than a slave's wage, the price of a slave. And this, the mighty thing about this whole thing is, look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, what? Throw it to the potter. In other words, God was disgusted himself with the lack of value they had placed on his word and the wages that they had said they would pay Zechariah for his labors in preaching the word. And he just said, throw it to the potter. That princely price, you get the sarcasm there? That princely price that they set on me. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, of course, the speculation here is is that Somewhere in, in, the, in the Lord's, you know, when he says in the Lord's house, he doesn't mean in the holy of holies or the holiest place, but he means in the temple area that there was a place set up, a room for a potter to make pottery for use in the temple area and in, in their worship. And he just said, cast the money off to him. That's all the value they put on my word. Then he says, I cut into my other staff bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, and seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. You see all these things that he's talking about again. Of course, this is I think take it, talking you know, down the line with the Antichrist and this one who would be raised up. But noted, all, all I want to note here is verse 17. Note what he says. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. Now, of course, the right arm indicated his strength, his right eye indicated his, you know, his intelligence. And he says his arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now it ends on a pretty sour note. You know, we got the good news first in verses chapters 9 and 10 about all the things that were going to come to Israel and happen to Israel when her king came. But I want us to go, I want us to turn over to the Psalms. If you wouldn't mind, I'll end with this. Psalm 23. And you all know what Psalm 23 is. But I want to to finish off on a positive note to note what King David had to say in his Psalm about the Lord being his shepherd. And hopefully as a result of what we've just studied over the last few weeks including and, and today, we will help see this picture of what the shepherd is to be and what God will be to his people, his flock. Note, and we noted that. He said, my flock, my flock, my flock, my flock, my people. So we know the flock is not just literal sheep. It's my people. And he says... The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or lack any need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores or refreshes my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Boy, that's exactly what the shepherds of Israel in Zechariah's day and on Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day, what they were not doing. They were not leading the people in righteousness. And so he says in verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Wow. How much better could it get if the Lord is doing this for us? How much more can we look forward to the joys of the millennium, that 1,000-year rule of Christ over the earth, and and Hear the Lord give us an abundant entrance into his kingdom. You know, it's one thing to enter his kingdom, but to have an abundant entrance is just an entirely other, new, it's a different thing altogether. I want to enter with abundance. I want to be lavished upon by the Lord. And for what, how do I do that? Well, I walk obediently to him. He told Amos, walk humbly before your God. That's how you do it. Walk humbly before your God. And finally, in that last verse, he says, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is, for length of days, for a long, long time. He doesn't tell us how long. He just says for a long time. It's not the word olam, which means for an age. But it means a great, great long time. Our English word forever. If we're going to look forward to the Lord's coming in 2016, which I think a lot of us would love to see it happen, would we not? then this is how we need to live. We need to live like David. We need to have our trust in the Lord, believe in the promises of his coming, to know that what he told the shepherds to do, and they failed in it, is going to be rectified by the Lord himself through his servant David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he will fulfill all those things to us just like he did temporarily to Israel when he brought them back from captivity and restored them in the land. It'll all be brought back to fullness and completeness. Let us march on to perfectness, perfectness, completeness, maturity. Let this be the year that we take that final step, that step of Complete devotion to Jesus Christ as one of his disciples and walk before him faithfully. And you won't regret it. You will not regret it. Will we? Mm-mm. It'll come to pass. Let's pray. Father, the promises of God. In the scriptures, this one that you gave through the psalmist David, what joy it brings to our heart to know that simple obedience to your word will bring unbounded joy in that day of judgment. Unbounded joy in that day when you open those gates and all those who have faithfully followed you will be entering into your kingdom. Some will enter with an abundance. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see and acknowledge the truth of that promise that Peter told us about. That if we do those things that you expect of us and require of us, that we can be uh, holders and possessors of an inheritance It will outshine anything this present earth has to offer. Let us be faithful to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.